Welcome to Machine Learning. This is the recap for the week and some thoughts on the future. One of the things that I'm seeing is that uh, there is a general weakness in generative text where I took uh, the Alice in Wonderland data set and I uh, segmented the sentences so that uh, was basically uh, traversing over the document 50 characters at a time and then making a prediction using those 50 characters on what the next character would be. And uh, it's true that I only ran it through one epic, but the results were not very good. I could not uh, get the, the network to generate text that was understandable. And so what I'm concluding is that I needed to actually run it maybe for a hundred epics or so to generate, uh, train the network well enough on the data to um, produce a result. And so there's a lot of computational processing that is required to do generative text. And so then uh, it becomes an issue of hardware. So one of the things that I'm wondering is, you know, how, how valuable is generative text? We don't generally talk to the computer and expect the computer to talk back to us. However, it would be nice to be able to talk to the computer and ask it to summarize documents, tell us what is important, and interact with the document versus reading it, pondering it, thinking about it, summarizing it in our mind, and generally thinking about more abstract concepts. So in essence, that's what they're attempting to do with the LSTMs is create a tension cell where they're looking at how much of an influence do certain words have on the sentence. And then using those um, attention words, build a summary statement from those attention words. And so the, the concept is really good and LSTMs are pretty useful. I did a, an LSTM podcast or YouTube that explained uh, how I used the bi-directional LSTM to make a stock prediction price. And basically what I concluded from the LSTM is that it has the effect because of looking backwards of uh, curve smoothing. It has a smoothing algorithm, a lot like window averaging that we had previously talked about but it's uh, being fed into the network. So it has kind of a smoothing algorithm uh, for the, the line. And uh, I compared it to the actuals and it was very close. And so I concluded the LSTMs are pretty useful. Uh, now I've also done the same thing with neural nets and dense layers and with activation functions. And those, those uh, seem to find function really well too. 
any linear function can be modeled by a neural net. So that was really exciting to uh, realize that the LSTM was so useful. And I'd always heard that maybe the LSTM was leaving and it wasn't being used uh, as much, but uh, I think that's uh, not true. I think the LSTM is uh, very valuable to time series analysis. And so um, I, I like it for the reason that it has a hidden cell, it has a short-term cell and a long-term cell. And that, that architecture allows for finding what is important in the data. And as Whitehead has said that there's the two things that are critical for intelligence is importance and interest. It would be interesting to see if a machine could determine what is interesting. How would it determine that? Well, I think we would. it would be something like how we do is based on an emotional response. We see something that catches our attention. We want to find out more about that. It becomes more important. And I think that that's what's going to happen as we move uh, further into the world of AI is more things are being presented to us that are, are uh, capable of not doing lots of functionality without programming that we will want to um, have things that are important presented to us, things that it can do. Like in the era of self-driving cars, we're going to want to have machines that are, are very reliable, that don't make mistakes. But no, if you took the world and everything was self-driving and uh, everything was properly spaced and there wasn't aggressive drivers and there weren't drunk drivers, but there were, the machines were operating uh, very efficiently, it would be a lot like uh, communication devices that we have today is we're using them every day and we're using them for things like communication, recording ideas, writing stories, but what happens when AI creates better art than human beings? It creates better stories, more captivating stories, better plots, more intricate plots. It remembers character development better. Uh, there's less inconsistencies in the storyline. Well, we could say then that uh, computers are extension of the mind. I mean, they had to take their data from somewhere. And that has to be from the from the human mind, and so we just say this is uh, this is computer dreaming, perhaps. And generative text does almost seem like a dream, where it gets it kind of comes up with these statements, and you're wondering, are they true? D does it make sense? Well, and I saw some cases like it, where it was trying to reason what was in the box, and they'd ask them questions. If I take out this item from the box, what's in the box? Uh, it was pretty good with doing relational analysis that generally was logic. And I'm wondering if the reason why it didn't do better is that we don't usually talk logical. And so there's a lot of guesswork in the way we, we think not as precise as we 
want to believe that we are. So if we took um, and all the logic, let's say we took all the logic that's possible and then we put it in text form, would the computer get better at logic reasoning? Let's say if we just trained it on, you know, billions of logic problems and deductive problems and reasoning problems, would it get better at the reasoning if we covered more more space? Now that's the the idea that I've had is about quantum states is that they cover all all these possibilities, and so as you talk about quantum computing, you also are equivalently talking about quantum reality. So if the machine begins to simulate all different possibilities, does that become a reality where we're now not thinking linearly, but we're thinking quantum? And so will a machine that thinks in quantum terms be able to generate text that covers all possible states? Because what's what LSTM is actually doing is it's remembering the state of the data. So you're running it through every possible state combination of what could be in the future based on 50 characters in the past. So it's looking and generating text. Uh, it's looking at 50 characters previously, and then it... Uh, is inputting that into the next network to find out what the next character might be. And then we're reading that as human beings and, and trying to understand how well the machine understood state. Now, this seems to, generative text seems to be an area where uh, NVIDIA could do very well if it came out with, let's say, a processor that you could take all the text in the internet, you could run it through your NVIDIA processor, and then you could have a machine that has a model that could respond uh, accurately to questions that you have. The reason I wanted to do this is because I see a huge area in psychotherapy where uh, the machine could answer questions, it could summarize what the patient is saying, and it could uh, do, ask certain questions that might be relevant or helpful to the patient. And then it could record all of this dialogue for review with a real psychotherapist. And responses that were not professional could be conditionally marked as inappropriate or, or needing correction. And that feedback then through reinforcement learning could train the GAN network that those, those type of responses uh, should be inhibited. And so it can readjust its network to inhibit or prevent the, uh, the LSTM network from making those responses. So you could have networks that are watching networks. I think I proposed that in the past. That, that that seems to be the way to go is have discrete programmable logic that we as human beings program that will monitor the 
state responses of the LSTM network. That seems to be the, the trend where we're going. And uh, I bring that back from the, my discussions with uh, Jokum about the Ralph system where they used neural nets, but their algorithms were very good at detecting where the edge of the roads were. So it knew that um, not to go off the road. And they had neural nets that could learn what different road types were very quickly. And I, I feel like that's what we need is continuous learning networks. You can't just be trained and try to find all possible states. And then if we find new states, retrain the network and release out a new release. It just is too slow. It has to be adapting maybe within the millisecond range. And so uh, it's learning and it's, it's realizing what's going on in its environment and it's adapting. And so I guess that you're making the argument for super intelligent machines because I think uh, narrowly defined task machines uh, have the, the problem of not covering all the possible states. What else is interesting? Well, I read a couple articles on high-density hydrogen that I thought were interesting. If high-density hydrogen does exist, and when you introduce uh, energy and you can generate 20,000 millivolts of power, then you could have um, high-density hydrogen producing electricity that could be running electrolysis that's generating power on demand at uh, refueling stations or if you're capable of building small units that would run inside of a car you could run your car off water and that's been the general idea but the, the question I have is how could this uh, clean environment that's non-hydrocarbon uh, be taxable. Well, maybe you don't tax transportation. Maybe that's the way of the future is that transportation is energy free and clean. You don't tax that, but you tax uh, uh, consumer consumptions of other items. Because in order to go clean uh, environmentally, you've got to reduce down cost. And if the if it costs a hundred thousand dollars to go clean on your vehicle, and you only have the capability to spend twenty thousand dollars, you're not going to elect that option. So getting into the range of the twenty thirty thousand dollar vehicle that is clean is is has to be the challenge. So the other thing that you could do is you could have the $100,000 fee, but you charge a lease price of, say, four or $500 with the fuel being free. So there's a lot of different uh, scenarios that could possibly work to make things free with the very expensive vehicles. But the other idea, too, is that, you know, 
coming up with high density batteries so that they wanted to keep the vehicle prices above the let's say the $70,000 mark and they're working on these high density batteries well you have the Lucid Air that's going to be released out and it's going to have about a 500 mile range and its price tag is around $70,000 and like I did with my analysis of electric cars most of the electric cars are over $70,000 and uh, and so you're paying these high prices for uh, for your transportation and so why is it that uh they've made the vehicle so expensive why don't they have in-wheel motors and basically a steel frame but instead they've made complex systems where they've got the huge motors in the areas where a traditional internal combustion motor is and they don't have the motors in wheel I'm not sure why they did it that way. Maybe it, it's because of the weight of that motor when you go to change the tire, that there's going to be issues uh, when you take off the tire and it's got a motor inside. But uh, it seems like that the architecture on that could be solved. And uh, you, you could have the motor, you could reduce the motor down to the size of, say, a brake, have this little teeny motor that's powering, you know, putting out a lot of horsepower through really powerful magnets, maybe that's the direction to go. But it seems like that what they want is in order to get the, the speed and the power that is a selling point for the electric motors, they have to put the big motors uh, in the areas that are separate from the tires. So, that, you know, let's say that you do have in-motor tires in the future. Uh, will the use of robots to change the tires be required? I mean, let's say that they, they weigh two, 300 pounds per tire. And, uh, you know, you, have, you don't want to be lifting those off manually. So now you have robots that remove these uh in motor wheel tires and replace them with new new tires. So those are some questions, and then you know you'll have a new range of, of mechanics where they're replacing uh, parts, these electrical parts in the tire, where they just remove the component, put the new component in, and then uh, release release the vehicle. Well, one of the things that I've been wondering is if AI is getting super saturated. You know, we looked at all this machine learning algorithms, and, and now we look at companies like H2O AI that are building pipelines that are AI-based, machine learning-based, that require no programming. Uh, there are better ways now with the software to set up your pipelines where you're using general recipes and different architectures that work really well generally and the code can be reused. I'm wondering if machine learning and AI is starting to become saturated. I mean, I don't know how many millions of people are thinking about this, but 
there has to be a lot because of all the market drive and the jobs that are available in AI and ML. So how do you gain this level of experience that you can do things that are useful for the company? And I think it's a problem domain, tell you the truth, is that you have to look at what the problems companies want to solve or they're not solving. That was the good question I was talking to a colleague the other day. Uh, kind of an adversarial conversation didn't like it too much but uh, he did mention that uh, 60% of engineers 60% of a lot of the solutions are created by engineers who recognize problems in the companies that companies are unwilling to solve and I've seen that happen I've seen a lot of things where I've thought, well, I could, I could definitely build that and it would, uh, solve, it would solve, uh, certain problems in the company, but, uh, you know, due to isolation and lack of influence, nothing happens. And so, you know, people just go on their own way and, and things are done the same way and they struggle to get work done and maybe it's not, not done efficiently and maybe it's done with error. But uh, because they don't have that visibility. And see, that's where the business intelligence and the AI kick in, is you take that, you take that data that's uh, very separated, very loose, you know, it's in different areas. Maybe it's on different services that you're using. And you pull that into one area through RESTful APIs or... Uh, probably RESTful APIs. I can't think of any other way you would want to do it. And then pull that data into a centralized area where you can then run uh, reports or uh, analytics to discover what your data is doing. And so you can see that these these types of uh, features are, are pretty powerful, is that they now open up the world to, for us to understand what the data is actually communicating. And then we can reflect, we can then reconcile uh, real world behavior to the data to see if the data supports the real world behavior. You know, maybe it's like more data needs to be collected so that we can run more analysis for the. Um, the systems and uh, those, those type of things will become useful to the uh, corporations and then the other thing is more corporations are now trying to get things that are free which is kind of a paradox because I don't think that they're going to reduce headcount by trying to get free software. I really don't believe that. But I do think that what they can do is they can reduce licensing costs by utilizing free software. And I think that in itself solves a lot of problems. Um, I use Microsoft. It's not free. But there are some software components where you can leverage and use, and they work a lot like they're free. For example, uh, 
C-sharp. You're not charged for using C-sharp, but you are charged for um, licensing a Visual Studio co um, professional or enterprise. And But you could use Visual Studio Code, which is free. And so there... Um, I think that uh, free is is going to gain momentum, especially if machines can start writing code. If they can do a lot of the functionality, almost like a four-generation code generator, where you know you're using certain things like widgets and the widget behaviors, so you're moving from uh, kind of this low-level programming to component-based programming and controlling the behavior of that component. And so behavioral-based programming is going to be very useful because now machines can uh, start looking at behavior, learning the behavior of the interaction between users, and then generating widgets that they're predicting will be useful behavior. And then uh, through really well-defined interfaces, they can map, automatically map data from data sources to the widgets, and the users can select, you know, what items that they need, or the machine can start figuring out what items might be useful, and then reducing the list as requested, or giving the user options through the interface to reduce or increase the risk list of, of data items that they want to see. And I'm seeing more of that type of widget-based uh, user preference type of programming where they can set those, those preferences easily. And so that the, the future will see more code generated, much more automation, and uh, more, more interactions with the software be able to do work so these are these are definitely trends that a uh, large number of people are developing and uh, gaining strength on and so you know if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering what uh, what your programming world will look like in the future I would say it will definitely be augmented by AI as it helps you uh, write code refactor code, look for errors, analyze performance. All these things um, have been tools, separate tools. We require lots of training to be able to use them. Uh, will now be learned by the AI systems and incorporated into your development environment. And a lot of this could be done automatically where it does a performance analysis on your code for you automatically and lets you know areas where things are not performing well. And maybe it's just, a, you know, you're adjusting a temperature gauge like uh, on GPT-3 where you're adjusting, you know, how much interaction you want to have with the tool uh, as far as, you know, assisting you in, in these type of performance issues or network issues. And so, as the world of AI moves closer to our real world, 
the more we're going to expect uh, AI to do. Well, we expect AI to do a lot with the IntelliSense or our preferences, uh, you know, making things easier for us to do the coding, uh, getting better examples to follow, trying a, a piece of code to see how it works, and then, you know, we implement based on what we expect the code to do, and if the code does what we expect, then we um, are satisfied that the API is useful, and, and then we will use that that API uh, more in our programs. And I think that's one of the reasons why Python has become such a powerful programming language, is because it does uh, a lot of work in a Pythonic way that would take lots of code, but because it's Pythonic, it can be shared, and you know people are sharing different ways to do things. Uh, and, you know, through the analysis of the Stack Overflow, you, you have many people approaching a problem with different uh, solutions. Some are cleaner than others. And some are more Pythonic, which would require a deeper knowledge of the function calls and what they do. And so there is this translation of Python to uh, almost natural language in terms of the descriptions. And so I think that we will have more of this natural language to Python coding where we, we say, here's what I want to do. We describe it in a natural language. And then the machine uh, generates the Python code that's equivalent to doing that. We plug it in, we you know put in our input, we see if the output generates properly, and then we conclude that that segment or, or snippet of code was useful. And I and I think that that's going to be uh, very helpful in the future, where maybe Stack Overflow will become. Uh, integrated more closely with the development world because um, you know, I'm expl explaining lots of the Python code um, on my YouTubes and I'm starting you know to get more people getting interested in it and I'm starting to wonder you know let's say it, that I could run uh, instead of you know two videos a day I could run you know 20 videos a day going through the Python code and explaining it. Uh, and then we could also go to the Stack Overflow and look at uh, problems that are being you know, solved out there and, and then look at the different approaches to solving the problem. But for the large part, a lot of the problems then just become uh, natural language to Python type of uh, problems where, you know, it's not... Uh, it's the sequence of combinations that become critical, and that's where the human element is that we remember. Oh, I've, I know how to get uh, this data over into this form. I'll just unstack it, or I'll melt it, and I'll group by it. Or, you know, it's almost like a chess game. You look at the, the move, and you think of what, what the steps that you could possibly follow to get a certain outcome. And I think that machines can do the same thing. Like you can do almost like a chess game where you say, okay, here's what I want to do, and it 
it says, oh, okay, I could do, I could do that. I could get it into a uh, pivot table. That's a simple form. It's columnar. Um, I could aggregate it using uh, AGG Funk, and I can uh, set the sum and the, and the mean and the standard deviation and the z-score and things like that. So you know you could, and then it says, okay, that's step one. Step two is now I can add a, a column total, a row total, total, and then I can put that into a heat map. Some of those might be the four steps or so uh, that the machine follows. And then you look at the output and say, oh, yeah, well, please add, a, add annotations and uh, change my formatting to one place of precision. So then it puts in a FMT and then it puts A-N-N-O-T-T-A-T equals true. And it knows where to put the code. So, that, you know... Um, so it's almost like you would train a programmer. So could you train a programmer uh, the functionality of everything a programmer can do in an AI server? And I think that there must be someone that's looking at you know how programmers think and you know try to say okay let's approach this from a sequential point of view steps. You can think of RESTful as also the same way as when you're building a RESTful call. You have built your controllers, you build your classes, you build your dependency injection. All these things have kind of a layering effect. You set up your dependency injection a certain way. You have a, a data access layer that's talking to the SQL server through stored procedures. You have, uh, and then you can have on the SQL Server side, you can have table functions, table scalar functions, store procedures, um, and so forth that are providing interaction on the SQL Server through an interface called the data access layer. And that's called then wrapped inside of classes so that you have entity framework those classes that are interacting with those data access layers but you know when you're looking at this and as I looked at it when I was generating code I was like you know a lot of this stuff is cookie cutter I can just build templates and so I did I built templates in, in PowerShell and put in my parameters and let the PowerShell tr tr uh, create all my interfaces and uh, it was nice, you know, because I didn't have to um, hand type out all my interfaces and my um, fluent API calls. And so because of that, you know, I, I could get the architecture designed the way I wanted and then I could reuse my templates and then I just tried to standardize the way I was interacting with that data access layer. And so, you know, you could do the same thing with a large enterprise with lots of code, is that you could have these standards, these templates that you're generating and providing lots of functionality uh, to the end user, uh, the complete enterprise. And so you want to, let's say that there's a million levels of functionality or million functional pieces 
that's a lot of complexity actually when you think about it if you had a million things that you could do how would a person know which of the million things that they could do well there's just going to be an explosion of uh, functionality and so it becomes a search problem and again that's why I say that uh, I think that uh, the better organized way of looking at your companies maybe through really high level interfaces and then as you want to you know, explore further down you can travel or navigate through these high level interfaces to areas in the level of functionality that the machine has generated and then you can find the specific areas like for example I was running something the other day and uh, and then I had to get down into the check payment level so I had to pull that into the system uh, externally and then once I had that then I incorporated that into my temporary table and from my temporary table into a view and then from a view into a report and so yeah it wasn't that many steps but it still required me to stage and engineer the data and get the data where I needed it and so I could then consume it and um, well, if you're talking now, let's say 20,000 tables, how would you find the table that you need? Well, you're gonna you're gonna break things into domains, and you're gonna classify their, your tables into certain domains. See, and then it's gonna be a reduction problem. It's a dimension reduction problem is what you're doing. So, and computers are very good at dimension reduction. So, do we use? Uh, let's say you walk into a company never been there before do you use uh, unsupervised learning to gain an idea of what the domains are or do you find some master key that that uh, shows you what all the domains are and then from there you you can then find um, tables that are useful so you find the key tables because you know that there are certain structured um, Approaches to storing data that are unique to any business. You know. So, if you're manufacturing, certain things are going to be interested. More important, if you're uh, retail, certain uh, certain other things will be interesting to them. You know, they'll be very focused on labor and inventory. If you're retail, so those are those might be the really key areas that you gain mastery over those domains. Well, you know, even in the area of labor, I, I spent a long time, several years, working on labor and, you know, working on calculating benefits and the prorating and all that stuff. And uh, then I also started looking at things that, uh, that were useful um, in terms of, of um making sure that uh, that certain things were were lighting up, like sick was lighting up, and that they were authorized to give sick out, sick pay and things like that. So those were those are things that uh, uh, that could be monitored and you know the ERPs really didn't cover everything. I mean they provided a data store, they provided a place to put the data, but they didn't provide all the logic that goes the business logic that goes into running a company 
And so I was constantly implementing business logic in uh, my processes. So now as I start thinking about that, you know, how do companies uh, go from this natural language processing where it's called business to uh, machines where they, they want to talk about uh, machines that can generate code that, uh, you know, are, are useful. And so, that you know, that's where... Um, I think that this uh, NLP to code translation is going to be nice. It's going to be powerful. But it, is, it can't just be kind of gimmicky where it says, okay, I, I think you should use this function, this function. It should uh, be like a chess game. And I, that's my new proposal is that it's going through all these different states. Because that's what a chess game does. It looks at the board and says, what are all the, here, here are all possible states. It starts navigating intelligently. Um, intelligently through those states and is scoring and looking for the best score to get to the outcome. That's basically what Stack Overflow is, is that, you know, you're looking at these possible states to an outcome and the people are voting on which, uh, which solutions have the best uh, state sequences to the outcome. And so why can't that be moved into a programming world? And uh, as you explore uh, states. And then I was talking to another colleague and he was asking about AI grafting. And I think that that's probably what's happening is that they're, they're moving from uh, this uh, kind of just recall now to actual graphs where they're analyzing states in the graph and looking for uh, efficient pathways through the, the graph. And that... And that is actually very intelligent, and we're going to see lots of useful things as a result of that. Okay, happy Python coding, and good luck.